All right, we'll be reading Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. If you are looking in the Black Bibles, it's on page 948. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, church, good morning. It's great to see you. Welcome to Trinity. If this is your first time, we're really glad you're here. It's just great to see everybody. As always, we've got a beautiful morning. It's so, so nice out uh, and feels so good in here. Am I right? Great to see you. Thank you to whoever that was. I'm going to guess Mark. Was it Mark? I got it. All right. All right, so this past week, I am walking through Target, need to get some stuff for the house, and I've got my 11-year-old Joseph with me, you know, so we're walking through the back of the store, and sort of the back of the store is where they have all of the video games, all of the virtual reality consoles, and we're trying to get to where I'm going. We don't have a lot of time, so I'm like, son, don't even look over there, you know? I mean, it's like every young man's battle. I'm like, this isn't for you yet, you know? It's like, bounce the eyes, stay focused. But as we're, as we're walking, there's like a giant screen uh, with somebody promoting their new book, right? Whatever the new book is that they're promoting. And so we, we overhear him talking about the book, and he says, you know, this book will change your life. It will be so encouraging. This book will teach you how to change the way you think and, and to set your mind on the one thing that is most important. And I'm thinking, you know, that's in the New Testament. This is pretty cool. He's, he's about to, you know, preach the gospel. And he says, I'll teach you how to focus your mind on the one thing that matters. Who am I? What do I want? How do I be my best self or whatever, because I had checked out at that point, you know. And I just thought to myself, it kind of stuck in, in my ears, because how, how hard it must be, how exhausting it must be if we have to create for ourselves an entire identity, right? Like if we have to, you know, I'm, I'm not against all self-help, not against all self-talk. Self-talk is in the Psalms, you know. I mean, uh, my soul, my soul, why are you so downcast within me? And yet if you're having to, to decide for yourself who you are and remind yourself of that all the time, if you don't have anybody uh, who has created you speaking in with, with reality and encouragement and comfort, I just I almost can't imagine that anymore, having walked with Christ for a while. And so it made me think of all the times where, where the Scriptures say to, to focus our mind on something, and it, and it always says to make sure it's rooted in reality, and it actually has the power to change you, to comfort you, to encourage you. And so in Daniel 10, an angel tells Daniel, set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God. And Paul writes in Colossians 3, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. 1 Peter 1.13, with minds that are alert and fully sober, 
set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus is revealed. See, the biblical vision over and over is this. Let truth about God, about yourself, let truth guide your thinking. Let your life be driven by who, who God says you are. What, what God has declared over you as his child. Fix your mind on, on these things, right? Fix them on who God says you are. And now through Ephesians, we've reached sort of the halfway point in Ephesians. We've covered Ephesians 1 through 3. And the entire teaching of Ephesians 1 through 3 is who you are in Christ. I mean, like Paul is writing over and over. In love, God has chosen you for redemption, for adoption. He has made you his son or daughter. In mercy, when you were dead in your sins, he lifted you up and joined you with Christ. I mean, these incredible statements about about what God has done for you, who Christ is, what he has called you to in eternal life. And so there's three chapters of that, but then at the beginning of chapter four, you just saw it. He begins to turn from, from who we are in Christ to how to live in Christ. So in other words, he lays this entire foundation of truth and reality that we can cling to before he calls us to do anything at all in response. This one verse comes, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And it's sort of a summary of where we're going to go in the next three chapters, four, five, and six, to close out the book of Ephesians. Paul's going to tell us how to live in terms of our relationships and our speech uh, with our spiritual gifts and building up the church. He's going to show us how to, how to live in marriage and in parenting and in singleness. He's going to show us how, how to work, how to fight the, the spiritual battle that we're in all the time. All of this only comes after telling us who we are in Christ. And so we're going to look at three things in this short text today. The calling that we've received, the life that is worthy, and then the foundation for that life. So calling, life, and then foundation. Let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Father God, I'm just so overjoyed when I get to be with the church and I'm so excited for what you might have for us this morning. I pray with Psalm 119 that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. Lord, would you not just give us wisdom for life, but would you remind us of who we are in you and where that wisdom comes from, that we might be rooted in the gospel and living out of the freedom that we have there, Lord. Open our eyes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, first, the calling we have received. Verse 1 begins like this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Verse 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And so remember, Paul has just prayed at the end of chapter 3 that we might experience him for who he is to have an experience of God that actually surpasses knowledge. It's not without knowledge, but it builds on the knowledge of truth of who God is, and then it it moves even past that into an experience of the love of Christ. Remember that? How, How long, how wide, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ for us? And so Paul has been on his knees praying for us, and he sort of climbs back up and and moves back into his writing chair to get started 
on chapter 4. And he begins by, by urging us, compelling us, commanding us even to live a life worthy of this calling. Now, if we would review for a minute, what is the calling that we've received? Because this really is the foundation for the next three chapters. Everything that will come from here on out is, is flowing out of the teaching of the calling that we've received. And that calling is that God has chosen us for adoption. Before the beginning of time, he chose us to be sons and daughters. He sent his one and only son to live and die in our place, to be raised again on the third day. And he, he unites us to Christ. We are one with Christ so that when Christ is raised from the dead, we are risen as well to eternal life. We've been filled with, with the Holy Spirit, the seal and guarantee of our faith. We have reconciliation together, reconciliation between all kinds of backgrounds, ethnically, between genders, between you know, different socioeconomic statuses. We are all one in Christ. And then Paul prays for us to experience the fullness of this gospel. And so it's only after that entire foundation that we get the first real call to righteousness and obedience. You know, I hadn't really thought about this, even though I've, I've taught through Ephesians before, it never really struck me that this is the first real commandment in Ephesians, right? If you ask the average person on the street, they would say the Bible is, is primarily a, you know, a set of commands for how to live. But while there are a lot of commands in the scriptures, one of the things that that always seems to elude us, and, and we need to be reminded of it continually, is that God doesn't command us to anything until he has saved us and brought us into his very own family. In fact, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, I, I had to read through them again to be sure of this. Paul's over and over describing who we are and what God has done for us, and he doesn't really command us to do anything. As I read through, it, it depends on how you sort of look at the verbs, but I can count maybe two commands in the first three chapters. The first one is chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that at one time you were separate from Christ. The other one would be chapter 3, verse 13. Do not be discouraged because of my sufferings. And really, those are only like secondary commandments. They're more like promises or assurances. Don't be discouraged. Hey, remember what you used to be. And so he gets through three chapters of this incredible teaching and theology before he commands us to do a single thing. And even there, he says, based on this calling that you've received, now go and live a new life. See, the Bible doesn't command us to obedience until it calls us children. It doesn't tell us how to live without first telling us who we are. It doesn't make demands on us until it gives us the power to actually fulfill the law's demands. Now, this is not just a New Testament thing. This is the entire pattern of the scriptures. If I asked you, what's the most you know, well-known set of commandments in the Bible? You'd say what? Somebody's going to be like the, the Levitical laws with the fabrics or whatever. The Ten Commandments, right? You're like, I was afraid to say it. The Ten Commandments. And, and one of the things that's always sort of bugged me, if you see the Ten Commandments like listed somewhere or if it's up on a wall, it always starts with, you shall have no other gods before me, which is the first commandment, but it's actually verse 3 of Exodus 20. And I think we need to start where the chapter starts. And verse 1 says this, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. See, it's so critical that the law only comes after freedom. It's only after God has, has saved them from oppression in, in Egypt. Remember the, the ten plagues, the blood on the doorpost, the, the passage through the Red Sea, the you know, safety in the wilderness. Only after all of this does he give the law. That's incredible, right? He doesn't even bring the law until he has completely saved, saved them and brought them out into a safe place. And even then he reminds them, of who he is and what he's done for them before he commands them how to live. In the same way, Paul only commands us once, even though he, he thoroughly reminds us that we are God's beloved children, safe in the cross, blessed in these heavenly realms that he keeps talking about, kept for all ages in the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to To really soak in this as we begin the second half of the book, it's so critical that we remember who we are, what Christ has done for us. That means we have nothing to prove, we have nothing to lose. Now our our obedience, our faithfulness is a response to what God has first done for us, right? Now I think we struggle with this in part because the world doesn't really operate like this, right? There's not a lot of, of unconditional love out in the world. I think this is why I've been, I've been so just sucked in to this new Last Chance You. Have you seen this, the new season? It's a basketball one. They used to make uh, you know, the football ones. It's community colleges. Thank you for the applause in the back. But Last Chance You, Coach John. Bro, Coach John, am I right? This guy, strong believer loves the Lord, used to coach Division I, but he comes back to East L.A. Community College to coach these folks that have had such a hard life, been disadvantaged in so many ways, to to treat them like men, to care for them, to, to challenge them, but only in this foundation of love that he has created for them. And man, they are they are a really, really great team as well. And so I'm watching this like, man, Coach John, maybe I'll go to East L.A., you know? I mean, I you know, I, I graduated a long time ago, but I still got my four years of eligibility, you know? I mean, I, I, I've got these years, and I'm getting up there in age, so this is the chance, man, Juco. But what he does, man, he creates this environment of, of love and safety and affirmation, and he lets them make mistakes. And he doesn't kick them off the team the first mistake. He said, this is a place for second chances and third chances and so on. See, when there's a foundation of love, then faithfulness and obedience comes. And man, these guys would run through a wall for their coach. I mean, they would go into battle for their coach because nobody's loved them the way this coach has. And that is just a a tiny, tiny example of of the love that our Father has for us. A tiny example of, of the safety and the freedom that we have in Christ. The love that is lavished on us every single moment of every single day so that we can just purely respond in love, faithfulness, and obedience to God our Father. See, that's the calling we have received. Now, the second thing is the life. The life that is worthy. What what is the life that is worthy of this calling that we've received? And it's right there in verse 2. He says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
Now, this is sort of a mini form of the fruit of the Spirit. You're probably most familiar with, with Galatians 5, where Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it's not a, a list that is like there are only nine fruits of the Spirit. I mean, he, the word is actually fruit. It's singular. And so these are nine examples. Paul will do this in other places. But over and over in his letters, Paul's saying, here's what it looks like to be transformed by Christ. When you align your life with the calling you've received, when you're filled with the Spirit and abiding in Christ, here are some of the things that will be true of you. Humility, gentleness, patience, a sort of long-suffering love. Now, I think it's important to notice that that it's humility that comes first. And I think that's the case because in the Scriptures, humility is not just one of the virtues among all of the others, but it is the the chief virtue. It's it's the virtue that leads to all the other virtues. Humility is is the source of, of all of the other fruit of the Spirit. It all begins with humility before God. Andrew Murray was a a 19th century writer in South Africa, and he wrote a book that's just called Humility. It's my favorite book on the topic. And he says, humility is the place of entire dependence on God and is, from the very nature of things, the first duty and the highest virtue of every creature and the root of every other virtue. Humility is the only soil in which the graces root The lack of humility is sufficient explanation of every defect and failure. Humility is the root of all virtues because it alone takes the right attitude before God. It alone allows God to do all. Now, I think Andrew Murray would probably, if he was still alive and could see our culture, he would probably ask, even in the church, where is our humility? I mean, humility, it's not... For, for as big of a theme as it is in the scriptures, as much of we, we see in it, in, in the gospels, in Jesus' life, it just doesn't seem like it's a big theme in the church today. Like, I don't really go to conferences, like conferences for pastors with the big stuff and all the people, but I, but I know that humility is not the number one theme in all of these conferences, you know? It's not the, the most common theme in all of the Christian books and publishing and all the Christian music and so on. Now, why is it that humility is so rarely mentioned if it's that chief virtue? And I think Murray, in his book, I think he would say that our generation, until we can cultivate a real Christ-like, spirit-empowered humility, we're not going to see a lot of change in the, in the churches that we're in, and, and we're definitely not going to see a lot of change in the world around us. Without the humility of Christ, we will have very, very little impact. And so I want to pause and and say, how do we cultivate this humility? If it's really the first commandment out of Paul's mouth when he begins this, this second half of Ephesians, how do we cultivate humility? I'll give you a couple quick things. First of all, focus on Christ. Is one of the things that Murray does in, in his book. He keeps drawing us back to the life and the person of Jesus Christ, showing us Jesus' humility in his teachings and in his healings and in casting out demons, and certainly his humility in going to the cross on our behalf. So focus on Christ. Second, pray 
for humility. Pray for, for all of the fruit of the Spirit. And I would go so far as to say to pray for this every single day. My favorite book on the, the fruit of the Spirit, it was written by a, a British theologian, Christopher Wright, and he worked closely with John Stott, if you know that name, a really well-known theologian that has passed away. But he said that Stott would pray every single morning through the nine fruit of the Spirit and wouldn't get up and do anything else until he could just sit and ask God to create, to cultivate these fruit of the Spirit in his own soul. And so Christopher Wright, kind of reflecting on this life, says, John Stott is the most humble, godly man that any of us have ever known, and it must be because he starts his day praying, asking God for the fruit of the Spirit. Now, third, how do we cultivate humility? Strive for lowly service. You know, we don't think of, we think of striving for like high things, big things, but strive for lowly service, for for hidden righteousness. Choose obscurity over spectacularity, you know? The roles that are, that are less impressive or less visible. Murray talks about this so much in his book. He says, humility towards others is the sufficient proof that our humility before God is real. All right, so humility is about our relationship to God, but the only way to really know if it's operating in your life is to look and see, do I have humility towards one another? Now, the fourth thing, this will be the last one on this. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And if you notice that's verse three, it's also a transition. Smooth, am I right? Keep the unity of the Spirit. Verse three. Now, unity, right after humility, is one of the most persistent themes in Paul's letters as well. Over and over, he's urging the, the church to keep the unity, maintain the unity. Don't lose the unity of the Spirit. And the early church was under constant attack. The persecution was so severe in the first century. People were being dragged out of their homes, the New Testament says. They were put on trial. They were thrown in prison, and many were killed for their faith. And yet, even still, what the, what the letters of Paul show is that the biggest threat to the early church, it wasn't persecution, it was division. The biggest threat was, was a divisiveness in the church. And you don't really see the, the apostles praying for freedom from persecution, but rather that their persecution would grow the church, and they prayed for freedom from division. They prayed for a spiritual unity to cover their churches. But notice that the text says, keep the unity of the Spirit. It doesn't say create unity. It doesn't, it doesn't say build or, or cultivate unity. It says keep or maintain the unity of the Spirit. See, when the Spirit is, is fully operational in our churches, unity will be there right from the start. And it's our role not to create it, but to keep it. When we're saved in Christ and we're brought into this, this family of God, this kind of wild family that we are, we actually begin with unity in the Spirit. But because of our sin and the way that we're wired, we can easily lose that unity. And so Paul writes, keep the unity, maintain the unity. Now, I believe that, that Paul and, and all these letters, they're writing about unity in local congregations for sure, like unity in our own congregation. 
but also unity between congregations, between traditions and denominations, between even different nations where churches exist. One of the things that we get to do this upcoming Holy Weekend and Easter weekend, we're partnering with a few other churches in town to, to make our services and gatherings available to one another. So a couple of my pastor friends, Demarcus, who leads Convergence Church, he's, we've done some joint prayer meetings with them. Uh, you might know Scott at Legacy Point. They've put this together. We've got some handouts on the back table. But there are different gatherings all throughout Holy Weekend, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Our Good Friday gathering right here on Friday night will be available to those churches. And the reason that, that we decided to do this was to cultivate unity among our churches. And some people might say, well, your, your churches are, are so different. You know, there's majority white, others are majority black, one is Spanish-speaking. You know, what if you all came together in one congregation? And, and while I think that could be beautiful, I think the fact that seven congregations that are each so different are worshiping and praying together occasionally is a, a beautiful demonstration of unity. Like each one of our churches, we kind of have our own niche and our own mission field and our own kind of flavors. And I think that's actually a really positive thing as long as we maintain unity between congregations. The goal is not for one massive congregation that's just kind of everything combined, you know, but rather congregations working together in the city to reach the people, you know, pastors and leaders working together, knowing each other, members being willing to serve alongside members from other churches. That's a beautiful unity that the Spirit gives us. Unity is a gift from the Spirit. It requires this spiritual strength that Paul has been talking about, that he's been praying about. And I pray for this unity in our, our own congregation. We have had so much unity since day one. Really, it's a testament to your, your faith, your love for one another, but it's also just purely the grace of God that we've been basically a no-drama church for like two and a half years. You know, it's probably coming, but we can just enjoy right now just like zero drama. I love it, for one, you know? But we should pray and thank God for the unity that has been kept and maintained among us. Now, I want to give you a little example that is controversial, a little case study of something that can divide in the church, something that can, can break unity. And the example that I want to use is Christian nationalism. And you might be like, oh man, we just talked about race. We just talked, you know, we're going to do gender and sexuality in a couple weeks. And I know these are, these are big and these are tough topics. But I want us to be able to talk about these things in the church. And so Christian nationalism, if, if you're not familiar with it, there's a new book that just came out called Taking America Back for God, written by two sociologists, Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead. And they define Christian nationalism as a fusion of American identity with Christianity. In most cases, this happens among white, U.S.-born political conservatives. And we've, we've seen it so much in the last few months and few years that I think it's worth stopping and talking about in our own context. Now, there is a, a sort of soft Christian nationalism. That's, that's my own phrase, but it's kind of built out of this book where American believers really just want to see biblical commandments being held in society. They want prayer to be common in schools. They want one nation under God to remain in our, our Pledge of Allegiance. Most of all, they just want to pray for America to turn back to God. 
And I'll maybe speak to that in a moment, but there's the, the more bothersome version is the extreme Christian nationalism. Perry and, and Whitehead in their book, they show that this is about 20% of American Christians. And what this is based on is the idea that, Christ, that America was explicitly founded as a Christian nation and should be committed to a social hierarchy. So in other words, a, a hierarchy of men over women, of native-born over foreigners, Christians over Jews and Muslims and, and other religions, white over non-white. All of this is, is inherent to the primary you know, core view of Christian nationalism. And so this is what we witnessed at the Capitol a few months ago, the, the riots and, and the deaths that took place there, where we see people with American flags, machine guns, racist signs, and Bibles. I don't know if that broke your heart as much as it broke mine. And to recognize how much that damages and hurts our witness in the world. And if I can just speak as your, your kind of pastor and friend, as somebody you graciously, I mean, you empower me to read on these things and stare out the window at coffee shops and think about them. And I try to just present things to you as biblically and clearly as possible. But man, Christian nationalism at its core is a form of idolatry. You know, God and country, it's such a dangerous phrase because God and anything is a dangerous phrase. Like God plus anything is a really dangerous thing. If you put anything on the same level as God and, and of the gospel, you're in dangerous territory. And our calling is not to overcome the culture or to saturate the culture with, with Christian viewpoints because there will always be other viewpoints. We're also not supposed to just withdraw and, and give up on the world, but rather we're to inhabit it as foreigners and strangers and exiles, serving it, loving it, calling it to Christ, seeing churches that flourish. But our goal is not political conquest. Our goal is not to, to see all of our views held up in America and, and not in other countries, right? So if you want to pray for America, by all means, please, please pray for America. But don't pray that God's blessing would be limited to the 50 states of America, right? I mean, pray for God's blessing on the whole world. And so when Second Chronicles promises that if God's people would turn back to him and that he'll heal their land, that was a promise for Israel. That's not a promise for America. It's a promise that anybody who turns back to him will be healed, but there's not a promise that America will be this new Israel. Now, at the same time, if you're hearing this and you're like, yes, down with Christian nationalism, I hate those people. It's like, man, hold on. Because if you're looking down on other people for their hatred of looking down on other people, that's the same exact sin. So while you might be prone to a, a sort of nationalistic lifting up of your country alongside the gospel, maybe on the other hand, you're prone to looking down on people who are doing that very thing. And that can sever unity just as much as anything else. And so at the end of the day, it's not even really about nationalism. It's just a case study. And when people disagree about things, can we come together and talk about them? Can we look at, at Bible passages that get used on certain channels and say, is this really the correct understanding of this verse? We have to talk about hard things if we are to maintain the unity that the Spirit has given us.
Like if Christ died for us to bring us together, to make us God's children, we have to work hard, have hard conversations to keep the unity of the Spirit. And thankfully, it's, it's actually possible. Like it's actually possible to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. And so this is the third thing, the foundation of that life. Verse 4, Paul wraps up this section by saying, There is one body, there is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And I don't know if you're, you're picking up on everything that Paul is saying here, but he just went like full trinity on us. Father, Son, and Spirit, our Lord, that's a reference to God the Son, God and Father of our one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all. And so Paul is saying the Trinity, the, the three-in-one nature of God, that's the foundation for our life together. The foundation of our very unity, of our humility, of our shared life together, it's none other than the character and nature of God himself. And therefore, there is no stronger foundation in all the world than literally God himself, three in one. Yesterday, we had a, a membership class over at our house, had a lot of fun talking through vision and values. And one of the things we teach on in that class is why we're called Trinity. Why we're called Trinity Church. I mean, there are already two other Trinity churches in town. It's the least original church name that we could have come up with the least cool, hip kind of name, you know. It's the single most common name in the history of Christianity. And that's part of why we love it. Like we're just Trinity. What does Trinity mean? It means beauty. It shows, it shows us, it points us to the glorious riches of God's character and to the fullness of the gospel. Trinity means, means history. One of the things we love is that you can find a Trinity church in every single tradition of Christianity. Trinity means unity. There's relationship and unity within God's very own nature, and that becomes the pattern for our relationships. And yet also, Trinity means diversity. God is one, and God is three. Three persons, one God. And so diversity is inherent to God's very nature. And then lastly, Trinity means spirit. Trinity is not Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we want to be a place where we can be, be focused on God the Father, focused on God the Son, focused on God the Spirit, and not eliminate any member of the Trinity. And so we have what's called a Trinitarian framework for spiritual formation. A little bit of a mouthful, right? Trinitarian framework for spiritual formation. I've seen some of you order drinks at Starbucks, so I know that you can handle like complex terms and long things. I mean, I'll be behind somebody. There's like nine adjectives in the order of their drink. I don't know how you keep up with all that. I don't know how there are so many milks in the world. Also, those aren't milks, but it's a mouthful. Trinitarian framework for spiritual formation. It means that we have been made in the image of God. And if we've been made in the image of God, we have cre been created to be holy like the Father. We've been created to be faithful and obedient like God the Son. 
We've been created to be committed to unity and growth like God the Spirit. Our vision for for growth as individuals, as a church, as a whole body of believers, our vision is God himself, his character, his nature, his being. And think about it, since we're made in the image of a triune God, a three-in-one God, it means that we're relational beings as well. Fellowship is inherent to who we are. There's no such thing as an individual. We're a person in relationship. We are incomplete apart from other people. And just as God the Father gives glory to God the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit gives glory to the Son and the Father, and the Son gives glory to the Spirit and the Father, all within His very nature, so showing honor and love is part of our very nature. To, to honor one another above ourselves, that is one of the most godlike things you can do. To lift somebody up, even if it means lowering yourself, that's the very nature of God's self-giving character within the Trinity. And so to put the needs of the whole above the needs of the self, it's part of God's character. Like Jesus, we can learn to say, not my will be done, but yours, O Lord. All of this is part of what it means to be, be Trinitarian in our view of growth, our view of change. And so Paul is saying, remember who you are. Remember the calling that you have received, the the sonship, the, the inheritance that you have in me. Live a life that is worthy of this calling. Take on the very humility of Christ, one who came not to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for others and keep the unity of the Spirit. Is there a stronger foundation for this humility, for this unity in all the world? No, it's the very person of God, three in one. He is for us. He is for you. He sent his Son for you. He gave of his very own Spirit to fill you. He raised us up just as he raised his Son And so how will he not also grant us humility and unity when we seek him above everything else? Amen? Let's pray.